Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Innovators are important now more than ever as the global health crisis continues. What can the U.S. do to improve innovation for the public good? Things like vaccine development and better access to the Internet for everyone. Coming up where we live, we talk to Nisha Charia, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and a former senior advisor in the Obama administration. We also learn how events like pandemics can bolster private and public partnerships. We'll hear from Fiona Murray, Associate Dean of Innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management and co-director of MIT's Innovation Initiative. First, we check in with State Senator Saoud Anwar, who is a medical doctor on the front lines fighting COVID-19. He's also leaned on innovation as he and his colleagues work to save the lives of Connecticut residents. Uh, Dr. Anwar, welcome to the, back to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Uh, when I say that you're a medical doctor, you specialize in lung disease and critical care at Manchester Memorial Hospital. As a state senator, you represent uh, several towns, including East Hartford and Ellington, East Windsor and South Windsor. But I imagine your days have been especially busy over the last month working in the ICU. Tell me about uh, what you have experienced, what your colleagues have experienced helping people with COVID. So, so Lucy, this is, uh, I've been um, in um, this specialty and working for the past 25 years, and I have not seen anything like this before. Uh, we have seen illnesses with multi-organ failure with ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome and severely compromised patients all these 25 years. But the, the, the significance and the severity and the number of patients is way out of any of our plans or thoughts. And, and uh, uh, while we are managing these, it's like uh, it's the same story at bed after patient after patient, and it's it's emotionally uh, a huge toll, and then it's physically labor intensive work as well. And and um, I don't think we have been prepared to to work in this capacity, uh, but uh, but at the same time, I can tell you that all the healthcare workers are coming together, and we are working hard to. Uh, have successes and thankfully we are having more successes than uh, we would have thought. Well, when we think about success, that's a good thing, especially as we hear about this peak that we're reaching in Connecticut, I think uh, this weekend or in the next week. And so when we think about the peak, uh, again, peak number of COVID-19 positive cases, as well as hospitalizations, are you worried about your particular health system's capacity that you may be overwhelmed or are you in good shape in terms of uh, the medical devices like ventilators that you need? So as of right now, our contingency plans are working, uh, but we are one or two nursing home uh, outbreaks away from uh, challenges. Uh, so uh, we are looking at it every single day. We are reassessing our uh, current status. We are looking at the number of beds, the personnel and the ventilators, all that is uh, available to us. So we are assessing that literally every day because any day, any moment, some things can change if there is an outbreak in a nursing home or mm -hmm. uh, in, in a community or a cluster that we may come across in our neighborhoods. 
What about uh, PPE? Again, this demand uh, has skyrocketed in terms of uh, hearing uh, when we talk about innovation. Uh, how is your hospital system working with uh, maybe uh, suppliers in our state who don't normally provide some type of protective equipment uh, to help you and your colleagues do the work? So uh, there's a number of different strategies which we are, which we are using. So we are actually, um, obviously, everybody's cleaning up their face shields. Uh, the N95 masks, we have uh, had some donations, thankfully, recently that has helped us. But the existing N95, we, were, we are cleaning them up with ultraviolet uh, uh, light. Um, uh, in, in the end of the day, we put it for cleaning, and then and the next day, we pick them up again. So we have identified our own strategies, own ways of uh, surviving, if you will, and then keeping the healthcare workers safe. In the beginning, we were worried. And because it is a marathon, uh, while we are fine at this point, I don't know around the next corner if we would have enough. And that's why we have to stay on top of our, our status and, and make sure we protect our, uh, all of our healthcare workers. Today, we're focusing on the role of innovation, especially to deal with this unprecedented uh, crisis that not only our country faces, but across the globe. So as a policymaker and a doctor, uh, Dr. Anwar, uh, tell us how uh, you've leaned on innovation to help maybe expand ventilator capacity, uh, you know, if this peak uh, worsens. So, Lucy, uh, so as a physician, as a critical care doctor, um, we fight uh, to the maximum that we can, and and we are we are fighting with the patient's physiology, patient's pathology, in a manner that uh, humanly we can do, and then we are probably the last uh, stop anybody could have. With that in mind, we also are trained try not to give up as much as we can. So, with that in mind, when you hear uh, and you do the math, uh, uh, which is easy enough to do, that if uh, if fifty percent of your state or seventy percent of your state gets infected and 5% of them are going to be in the intensive care unit, you know that the state at one point had 1,000 ventilators and you're expecting 80,000 people to get sick. Um, it doesn't add up. So as soon as I looked at some of the numbers, I said that I'm not going to have as much as possible not have anybody die on my watch and, and, and fight for every single person. So um, this is something that has been tried where you can actually have a splitter uh, on the inhalation as well as on the exhalation side of the ventilator, where you can use one single ventilator to help uh, multiple people breathe. Um, and this is like a last resort. It's not a standard of care, but in a disaster, in a crisis, we don't follow the standard of care because if you do, then you're probably giving up on far more people than you would otherwise. Um, so with that in mind, I came up with uh, this uh, strategy. This was uh, something that uh, has been done before. So it's not... Uh, anything that's a rocket science, science that I came up with. It, it was uh, done before uh, by another physician uh, when we had the Las Vegas mm -hmm. uh, shooting. And then there was one emergency room that was uh, uh, managing many of those patients. So they were able to use a ventilator. But what we did was we uh, had a 3D printing of the, the quad splitter. And then we split the splitter another time to be able to have uh, 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 seven patients uh, 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 breathe on it. This is not real patients. This is actually uh, artificial lungs to see how the mechanics would work, uh, whether we could uh, uh, have the, the ventilator uh, be fooled into making sure it's giving breath to one person, but we actually use it for seven. 
and and it worked for us and and, and we were able to look at the numbers we were able to look at the assessment and uh, we felt uh, um, that if uh, we are up against a last resort, we could have something that would uh, hopefully allow us to save more patients than we would otherwise. Mm. That's really amazing. And when you uh, worked this out and saw that it worked uh, in this test uh, again, uh, you videotaped it. And has it gotten a lot of attention among other healthcare systems that this is something uh, in your toolbox, so to speak, uh, if needed? So Lucy, it got more attention than we had anticipated. I think it went viral with millions of people across the world watching it. I have been in conversations with people literally in every part of the world around this possibility. It's very real for other parts of the world. The ratio of the ventilators that are available and the population that may be infected are completely different. And we have had... Uh, hundreds of countries that have actually downloaded uh, this uh, um, our, our 3D files that that have been made free for anyone and everyone who wants to use this if they need to. And then my uh, YouTube videos and my Facebook videos are, are being used to try and at least be prepared. And I'm having conversations with the lung specialists across the world to at least tell them how to be cautious when you do this because it's not as simple as just attaching people. There's a uh, very uh, important aspects to be conscious of. And then we have hundreds of cities across the United States where they have been downloading our, our 3D files uh, as well. So um, people are watching and, and then getting better preparation. I hope that we never have to use these, but if people want to, at least there's another tool in their back pocket. So these designs are open source. When you say uh, they're downloading these 3D files, they would need a 3D printer as well? Correct. So it's open source and and people are going to various 3D printing sites to get them ready. And you mentioned that these are being downloaded all around the world. Do you know if uh, any other hospital systems and other countries have used this ventilator splitter? Um, no, I've not uh, heard of anyone using it in, in real people, but I know everybody is ready as, as and I, I'm telling them this is not the standard of care. This is not you would manage patients. And, and a lot of people are more interested uh, to make sure it's a backup, but they're also, uh, it's a disaster in many parts of the world every single day, mm-hmm. rather than what we are facing right now. So they are looking at it from that perspective and they are thinking of modifying it so they can use it on a regular basis. And, and uh, that will read a little bit more work. Uh, you're hearing on Zoom today State Senator Dr. Saud Anwar, who is a pulmonologist at Manchester Memorial Hospital. He's also a state senator representing uh, several towns, including East Hartford, East Windsor, and South Windsor. Uh, when I mentioned that uh, this video has gotten a lot of attention, you said it went viral. Al Jazeera even profiled uh, not only uh, this, uh, again, this this experiment that, that you put out there for people to see, again, as a last resort for ventilator uh, capacity, uh, but the community also wanted to show their uh, support and thanks uh, to you. They did a parade past your house. What did that feel like, uh, Dr. Anwar? That was, uh, uh, I wasn't prepared for it. It was a big surprise. I had no clue what was happening. And and I've been in quarantine. So because I'm taking care of all these COVID patients, so I actually uh, am locked in a room and I go to the ICU and then back in my room. And that's how my life is for the past uh, over a month now. And, and uh, as a result, it's like uh, not interacting with humans in real form. And when I saw 
all of these people come out in front of my house it was very emotional and and mm-hmm. it was very kind of them it had nothing to do with me it's just their kindness that that showed which uh, was heartwarming for me mm-hmm. how's your family handling uh, your your quarantine and the work you're doing oh well um obviously we miss each other you never you take for granted how much holding hands and hugging each other means and then uh, i can't wait to, for this to be over so i can hold uh my family and hug them and and probably won't let go for hours before i <laughs> i'm done well we thank you for joining us today on where we live and thank you for the work that you're doing uh, dr saud anwar was also a state senator a pulmonologist at the manchester memorial hospital thanks for calling in today thank you so much for having me this is where we live from connecticut public radio i'm lucy nall coming up how is connecticut's manufacturing sector working to meet the needs of local healthcare workers during this pandemic we talk with a nonprofit that's been matching local manufacturers to fill supply needs are you one of them you can join us too 888-720-9677 that's 888-720-WNPR or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just heard from Dr. Saud Anwar, a state senator, about the need to rely on innovation during this pandemic. Local manufacturers can help with demand, but how do they get connected with the healthcare industry and their workers if they don't normally work with them and may not understand their needs? Joining us on the phone now is Mike Stimson, Director of Strategic Engagement and Process at Constep. He's been involved in setting up and executing the Connecticut COVID response program, which matches Connecticut manufacturers with healthcare providers. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me on. Uh, when we think about uh, this pandemic, uh, we've heard policymakers talk about, uh, again, what it's like when we're at war. And we know in Connecticut, we've got a strong manufacturing sector, uh, definitely aerospace. There's also medical device production. So tell me about how your organization uh, is working with local manufacturers who've had to shift to help meet this demand. Uh, sure. So concepts a consulting company who specializes with working with small to medium-sized manufacturers to help them solve operational problems and improve their business. Um, We're we're part of a nationwide network called the Manufacturers Extension Partnership, and that allows us to leverage expertise and other resources from across the country. So the challenge, uh, as you alluded to, really is that, you know, the normal healthcare supply chain um, has been disrupted in a couple of fundamental ways. Um, you know, the usual suppliers have either shut down or are, or are unable to import the needed supplies. And this is coupled with the fact, as Dr. Anwar mentioned earlier, that the demand has skyrocketed. So uh, dozens of manufacturers have stepped up and have repurposed their operations to produce a variety of items. But the problem is because these companies are not part of the normal supply chain and are not visible to healthcare providers and first responders, it's very hard for them to make those connections, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And they also have raw material operation and distribution challenges for which they are normally not uh, set up to, uh, to resolve. So we developed the COVID or the Connecticut COVID response.org website 
in an effort to tie the two groups together, the healthcare providers needing the PPE, as well as the, um, the manufacturers who have repurposed their operations. We did this in coordination with Colin Cooper, the state's chief manufacturing officer. Um, and, there, you know, there's been some great examples of companies out there who have made this shift. Give us some examples, Mike. So there's there's a company down in West Haven called Thermax. Their normal business is to produce insulation covers for heating and cooling pipes. But they refocused their cutting and sewing operations to provide gowns for made out of Tyvek house wrap. And they are donating these to first responders, and they have uh, essentially been able to uh, cover the needs of a majority of the first responders in the state by doing this. Mm. They, they partnered with local home builders associations to obtain some of the, the building supplies. They detived uh, the house wrap itself. Um, and then also, this was kind of interesting, they, to solve the logistics challenge of getting the supplies in and the finished products out, they partnered with AAA. And they're using their delivery service vehicles as the uh, kind of the distribution method to provide the the uh, product out to the various towns. That's really so cool, was, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. So we've heard about the need for ventilators. Uh, you mentioned uh, making these disposable gowns. Face shields are also something that uh, first responders and healthcare workers need. Uh, give us an idea again of some other companies that have stepped up and shifted uh, what they normally produce to help. And are they getting any state financial help uh, to shift that capacity? Sure. So there there are several companies on face shields, and that's, mm-hmm. that's probably one of the, I guess, the, the bigger success stories here. Many companies have shifted their production. Uh, a couple that come to mind are, are Curtis Packaging. Uh, we're able to shift their uh, their printing and packaging operations to be able to stamp out uh, vast quantities of the uh, disposable style of face shields. And uh, Allied Printing is another one. Uh, in, a, in a similar main uh, vein, have uh, you know, utilize their printing and stamping capabilities to produce these uh, more of the disposable variety of face shields, but also Webco Plastics in Middlefield. Uh, they are a, a injection molding plastics, uh, you know, company who has some experience with the medical device uh, community, but they took a, a part of their operation and set up a brand new face shield uh, production line uh, in conjunction with some uh, advice from UConn and working with us to to create a whole new line of products. Mm-hmm. Uh, you asked about the potential state funding that some of these companies have uh, are able to tap into. There's been an existing fund out there called the Manufacturer's Voucher Program that the state has reallocated some of the funds to. I believe the, the number is about $1.3 million to for companies to apply for grants that can be used to offset the cost, basically the capital costs of refocusing their business towards the uh, the production of PPE and other needed medical supplies. Mm-hmm. It's been wildly successful. Um, many companies have already tapped into it, and uh, quite frankly, they've they've already some of them are already starting to receive their checks. 
Mm-hmm. So it's been a very efficient program that was able to be repurposed for this need. Has that fund been tapped out, or is there still resources to help other small manufacturers? It it is. It sounds like it's starting to get to the the to be oversubscribed at this point as far as the requests go. So I believe there are some there's some work in in play right now to to see if that fund can be extended. Um, the the other. The other sources of funding are essentially the ones that are out there today for other businesses, too, uh, such as, you know, the, the loans for payroll and things like that. But um, as of right now, I'm not, I'm not aware of any other you know, particular funds that are out there specific to this need. You're hearing on the phone Mike Stimson here on Where We Live, Director of Strategic Engagement and Process at Constep. He's been involved in setting up and executing the Connecticut COVID Response Program, which is matching Connecticut manufacturers with healthcare providers who need, who need PPE. Uh, Mike, we've got a lot of bigger healthcare systems, but I'm thinking that you know local community health clinics and other organizations need this kind of equipment. Is there a way to pair these manufacturers with them as well? Yes, there is. And so the the website that I mentioned, the ctcovidresponse.org uh, website, um, what we're doing with that is we're, we're taking in information on manufacturers who are providing the, the services, but also for folks, uh, those that you mentioned, smaller uh, assisted living facilities, smaller community health centers. Um, we're taking in their needs, and we're playing matchmaker, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, we're assessing what the needs are, determining if there is a manufacturer who has repurposed their operations that can meet that need, and then putting the two together, um, just you know, giving them their websites, their telephone numbers, and just matching them so they can order directly from these manufacturers. And something that we should highlight, again, all of these, uh, the shift from local manufacturers to make uh, this type of equipment to help healthcare workers, they're not technically certified uh, products for this particular need, but because there's such a demand, uh, that's why there's this shift, and it's it's better than nothing, Mike, right? That, that's exactly right. These, uh, these products are um, not FDA certified, but the CDC has put out guidance that in the absence of products from the normal supply chain, uh, items like these can be used if the healthcare provider deems them to be acceptable. So that's part of the matchmaking that has to happen also, is that samples of these products get out to the healthcare providers, they see them. And one of the things that we're able to do, and this has been uh, working successfully with the Connecticut Hospital Association, is once one uh, healthcare provider does accept it, we're able to leverage that to let others know that this has been accepted in other areas, um, and so they have some confidence that it, it's a, uh, a product that will meet their needs. Again, you're listening to Where We Live as we talk about the role of innovation uh, during this pandemic. You can join our conversation, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring into the conversation now on Zoom, Fiona Murray, Associate Dean of Innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management. She's also co-director of MIT's Innovation Initiative. Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on today. I appreciate it. 
Uh, so talk about some of the innovation we've already discussed on the show, first with Dr. Anwar and now with Mike Stimson again, um, helping small fan- manufacturers who uh, make um, things that may not be in the healthcare supply chain, but now they're stepping up to help uh, because of the pandemic. Is this something that we're seeing across the country? Yes, I think at this moment of crisis innovation, we're actually seeing everybody throughout the community, so throughout small communities, throughout states across the country, and in fact all over the world, um, are actually engaged in crisis innovation. I think what's different today uh, than in normal times is that we're all really focused on connecting and converging our effort so that we can actually take all the extraordinary innovative ideas that people are having to try and solve these immense problems and really try to scale them to impact. You know, when I think about innovation, I think about it as taking ideas all the way from inception to impact. And impact means scale. And so that really does mean that we have to bring manufacturers together. We have to share blueprints. Um, we have to be able to use distributed networks of 3D printers. And really everybody is part of this innovation, crisis innovation activity. I've never thought about that phrase, crisis innovation, but, you know, looking back at history, there have been other crises in the past. Uh, talk about how uh, crisis innovation um, has, uh, you know, d- been dealt with in terms of, of, of what we've seen in the past, uh, past pandemics, uh, uh, maybe even in the recession when uh, supply chains and uh, people making certain things uh, weren't even able to operate. Well, we often talk about at the moment, you'll hear people talk about us being on a war footing or, you know, in a, in a war. Um, I think the crisis innovation is something that happens when systems and communities are really under threat. Uh, and I think it does actually galvanize huge amounts of creativity and effort. Um, and, and the real, um, really important thing that we have to do at these moments is make sure that we do get this convergence of effort. I think what's particularly interesting about what's happening today is that this is happening. Everybody's involved all the way through from very, very young people, absolutely all the way through our entire community. It's also the case that I think in past moments of crisis innovation, it's often been about very, very large corporations who've sort of had to scale up production, whether during Second World War of, you know, boats and um, tanks and, and what have you. Today, we're also seeing this very large network of small and medium-sized companies and also the startup entrepreneurial startup community being incredibly important parts of the solution. So we're seeing these very nimble organizations, whether they are the sort of family businesses and the manufacturers that we we were just talking about, or some of the startups that are um, coming out of places like MIT or in the you know, Hartford innovation ecosystem, bringing solutions forward. And I think it's in places where we have these vibrant innovation ecosystems already and the sort of social fabric that we can start to push solutions into the system quickly. And that is an important part of, of what we're seeing today. Uh, Mike Stimson, I'm wondering if you can uh, jump back in when, we, when we're when uh, we listening to Fiona talk. We think we about our big uh, companies in our state like UTC, Pratt & Whitney. Um, you know, and then when we were hearing from you talking about helping manufacturers shift uh, to different capacity, you know, are we seeing that same level of, of commitment and production? Uh, yes, I, uh, I believe we are. So the one of the things we're seeing, um, or there's a project working now with uh, the UConn School of Engineering, is partnering with some fairly large aerospace companies on the design and uh, the production of emergency use ventilators. You know, something that um, 
you know, the Dr. Anwar had mentioned earlier. So we're, I think we are starting to see the um, essentially the, the the supply chains of these large, well-established companies uh, working to to get into the fight, if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, help help solve the uh, the issues that are coming up. I'm actually broadcasting remotely from my house, so apologies if uh, my signal dropped out there at the end, Mike. Uh, but, but, but Fiona Murray, uh, going back to you on Zoom, uh, when we talk about innovation in our region, I believe you've worked with Hartford Hospital on innovation projects. Uh, so talk through um, how, again, when you're working with the hospital system, how are they fostering innovation? So I've been lucky enough to work with the Hartford Healthcare System uh, for a number of years uh, since I got to know Dr. Barry Stein, who's their chief medical innovation officer. Uh, he was one of my students taking our executive MBA uh, program up at MIT. And uh, along with their CEO, Jeff Flax, they've made an enormous commitment to innovation in the hospital over the past several years. And for them, that's basically meant really trying to build a culture of experimentation, a shared language around innovation, a real willingness to try out new things, uh, to bring ideas in quickly and safely, and then to scale them if they seem to be working and then to shift if, if they don't. And also to find a way to dock in new startups, new academics who have interesting ideas. And I think it's because they had prepared and they have such fertile ground in the hospital over the last few years, and they've made that commitment that when this moment of crisis comes, they're able to shift again into this rather rapid crisis innovation mode. And so we've seen them do some really important work around COVID analytics, which they've done in collaboration with one of my MIT colleagues and an enormous team of his PhD students. I think they've been able to shift to online health, seeing over 20,000 patients online. Uh, If you stepped back perhaps a year ago, many, many hospitals and healthcare systems have been talking about online health for a really long time. And it's been a very difficult thing to try and work out how to do. And all of a sudden, it's basically happening at scale, in part because we have to do it. But I think in part because we have this prepared, fertile ground and the hospital and and Barry and his teams um, were really making this commitment to innovation over several years, which has allowed them to really have this incredible velocity of bringing ideas to scale rapidly right when we need them. That's an important point, Fiona. I'm also wondering, though, in terms of when we think about encouraging innovation across our country, where some of the gaps uh, remain so that we're not then responding uh, when there is a crisis and it's all hands on deck? So I think that we really do need a sustained commitment to research and development. And I think we need that across the board in a whole variety of areas. Um, We've been very fortunate that in general, the federal government has had a very long-term commitment, um, actually ever since World War II, uh, to really strengthening the science base. Uh, But I think we need to actually really continue STEM education. Uh, One of the gaps I think is probably in um, digital and sort of online literacy, coding and so on. And we can see at a moment like this, we actually need to make sure everybody is able to be incredibly proficient with working online, existing online. We might not want to do this all the time because this is a very stressful uh, way to live. Um, But there are certainly gaps in terms of the underlying infrastructure, the real access to uh, broadband and, and, and so on. Um, I think we also do actually need to really focus, we've heard just now about manufacturing. Um, While it may be very, very efficient to have global supply chains, we do definitely need to make sure that we have manufacturing capabilities that are really strong 
um, in this country. I think that's an important uh, piece of the puzzle that we need to focus on. I'm Mike Stimson in Connecticut. We hear that manufacturers are really struggling to find uh, the workforce uh, to do these particular jobs. Is that something that you're hearing even from small manufacturers uh, as demand is increasing, having people capable, having certain skills uh, to do the work? Yeah, that's, you know, prior to the um, this pandemic crisis hitting, that was probably the number one concern of most small and, and medium-sized manufacturers. And, uh, you know, there's, there's several things that they can do um, from, you know, really truly understanding what their actual capacity is and implementing many, uh, you know, techniques and tools for to help train new uh, folks who are not familiar with a manufacturing environment more effectively to onboard them properly and and to utilize automation and and other uh, technologies to um, supplement uh, the, the the workforce that we have it's it is a declining uh, population of, of workers so manufacturers have to be very nimble and and you know innovative to uh, solve this uh, very real problem. Well, I want to thank Mike Stimson for calling into the show today. Again, Director of Strategic Engagement and Process at consulting nonprofit Constep. He's been involved in setting up and executing the Connecticut COVID response program, which matches Connecticut manufacturers with healthcare providers. Mike, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, on Zoom with us, she's going to stick around for the next uh, segment is Fiona Murray, Associate Dean of Innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management, also co-director of MIT's Innovation Initiative. Coming up after the break, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, after the break, how can the U.S. encourage more innovation for the public good? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Innovators are important now more than ever as the global health crisis continues. What can the U.S. do to improve innovation for the public good? Things like vaccine development and better access to the Internet for everyone. Joining the conversation on Zoom now is Nish Acharya, contributor to Forbes, also senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Nish, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, again, when we think about innovation, Silicon Valley uh, comes to mind. Uh, when we were talking with Fiona Murray uh, earlier, uh, where how all of us have been able to shift, or many of us have been able to shift now to working remotely, working online. Zoom is really having a moment. Uh, but when you wrote a column in Forbes uh, recently, uh, you talked about uh, the fact that there are certain types of innovation we need to survive and get out of this pandemic, things like vaccine development. So uh, walk us through how, again, we can encourage innovators, like, say, in the Silicon Valley, to focus on this stuff for public good. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think there's there's a couple of different ways to think about this that I tried to highlight in uh, the column in Forbes. And one was that there are certain products in society that are public goods, and they are uh, things that the entire society needs. And there may or may not be a private sector Silicon Valley venture model for this. And, and that vaccines isn't exactly one of them. There's 
there's really not a lot of startups developing vaccines because the funding has typically been from insurance companies or, or uh, federal government uh, as to, to benefit society. You think about a flu vaccine. Um, and then there's other areas like education technology where uh, there's been funding at early stages uh, and there's lots of Boston and Connecticut and Silicon Valley startups working in it, uh, but the scale up has been uh, difficult. And so, you know, the thing I was talking about was that there needs to be some broader thinking about what are those innovations? And I think we're in the middle of seeing uh, so many in healthcare right now with vaccines, lower cost ventilators, uh, different types of PPE, different types of preventive treatment for COVID-19. These are all things that they're in the short term, there certainly will be uh, a big business opportunity, quote unquote. But in the long term, these are just things that society needs. And if there's not a business model, then the government should step in and ensure that they're adequately researched. Uh, so as Dr. Murray said, that sustained commitment to R&D. Uh, and, and then that there's a, a, the clear pathway to, to, to produce enough vaccines uh, uh, for us to have as a society, even if it's not the most profitable and certainly not as profitable as a, as a cancer drug or something like that. So the U.S. should invest in that research and innovation to find vaccines and treatments, but also ensure uh, that we don't leave it entirely to the private sector if they haven't, uh, if they haven't shown that they can scale it up quickly. And, and for that, I use education as the example where there's tons of education startups, but you know, we've found all of us uh, as our kids are at home that the solutions are inadequate. And so while there's been innovation in that space, the scale up uh, is going to require some government support, some you know quick guidelines, uh, whether it's state or federal level. And the government's really going to jump in and say, this is necessary, just as necessary as a classroom was 100 years ago. The ed tech infrastructure is important and we're going to invest in it uh, as a country. So, so that's what I was thinking about as the role of government and as a role of public goods and innovation. I'm curious when we think about government, innovation doesn't always uh, come to mind or thinking that government can be nimble. And so how do you get government to be more innovative and also attract talent that wants to work right. for uh, public, uh, the public sector and not the private sector where they can make more money? Right. And so I think that's a, sometimes a fair uh, Fair assumption, but I think the you know in reality, I think the government has been very good, uh, you know, in supporting R and D uh, that's been done by private organizations or state universities. You know, you think about uh, UC Berkeley in Michigan and as sort of state government, you know, institutions, public sector institutions, but they do incredible research. And so uh, I think you know the government doing what it's doing now, which is supporting R and D, uh, and we've seen this with vaccines where they're giving a lot of government funding to private companies to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. And, and that's probably a good strategy. Um, where government I think needs to get better is the strategic planning around the pandemics and you know, thinking about the next pandemic so that we don't ramp up from zero again. And are we providing enough R&D funding uh, for the, you know, the, this is a coronavirus is a, uh, COVID-19 is a version of the coronavirus. And so are we thinking about the next novel coronavirus and are we ramping up the infrastructure to 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 research that and treat it as it comes along. So I think that's where uh, government really th needs to think is is how are we going to do that? How are we going to prepare and innovate for the next set of challenges and be ready for them? And that they they can be good at when they want to be.
I was also thinking, Nisha, that when we everyone's waiting for this vaccine to deal with COVID-19, but mm -hmm. when that vaccine is finally developed, uh, does the government have the capacity to make sure they've got billions of doses? Right, exactly, exactly. And so that's exactly where the scale-up part of it comes in, that there may not be a business opportunity to build lots of manufacturing capacity uh, and to produce 300 million doses of this vaccine, that it, it just may not be a business opportunity. And so uh, that may be something where the government has to say, either through this Defense Production Act that the president is invoking or, uh, you know, government funding. It, it, you know, the whole defense industry is built on this concept, right? There's, there's no client in defense except for the federal government. And so we can do this. We can say, we need you to uh, create a vaccine and then produce it, similar to what we do with, with fighter jets. And so I think that's where government needs to maybe learn from what it's done in other sectors and, and, and build it up. And, and I would add to that, you know, broadband is, is, a, is another topic of that, where uh, 5G is a technology that's been developed by private sector in America based on scientific funding uh, from the U.S. government. And, uh, but they're just rolling it out too slow. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe there's a role for the private government to say, hey, private sector, let's roll this 5G out. So in, you know, God forbid this fall, we have to shut things down again. You know, 5G is available across more of the country than it is now. And so the question is, you know, who's going to do that? Are you going to get yeah. Verizon to do that? Or are we going to say everybody's got to do it because we need it as a country? Yeah. Fiona Murray, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation again, Associate Dean of Innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, talk through some of, of your views on, again, encouraging more of these pub public-private partnerships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I very much agree with a lot of um, what's just been said. I, what I will say is that there is no lack of commitment to really impact-oriented, mission-driven activities uh, on the part of this young generation, uh, whether they arrive at university on the West Coast, the East Coast, or anywhere in between. Um, we see a tremendous commitment to wanting to have impact and really wanting to focus on some of these very big challenges. And I think there are a number of things that we need to continue to do and do better. I think the first is to make sure that our education is fit for purpose. Uh, so that in, in addition to giving people some of the really deep um, skills, technical skills, other sort of social science skills that they need to also make sure that they actually understand the innovation process. They understand um, markets and they also understand how to interact and interface with government. Um, because as we just heard, the government is often the biggest customer. Uh, regulation is often something that you have to be part of and engage with. And so we really want to be able to have intelligent conversations and make sure our students are actually educated in that way. On the other hand, I think we also need to make sure that we continue this investment in R&D. Um, as we heard, I mean, the fact that we actually do have around the world and particularly here in the US, you know, 70 or 80 different vaccine projects actually taking place right now is in large part because there's been a pretty sustained commitment to some of the basic fundamental life sciences. Uh, we're going to, I think, need the same fundamental commitment to some of the other massive problems on the horizon, including climate change. You know, we don't know where the next moment of crisis is going to come, whether it'll be a pandemic, whether it'll be in climate change. And so we really do need to continue that commitment. But I think the gap um, that, you know, we've just heard about, which is the scale up, is right, that the private sector, and particularly the sort of Silicon Valley style risk capital, 
was completely optimized for things that were quite quick to scale and very inexpensive. So software is cheap to scale. It's expensive to develop. But once you've got it, you can share millions and billions of copies of it. That's not true of a vaccine. That's not true of an energy storage system. And so this funding for scale, I think, is a really key point uh, that we have to focus on. I think that's going to require a combination of sort of public-private um, activities. We're probably going to have to look to... Um, philanthropists as well for some of us and we're going to look to new sorts of models there's some very interesting new impact investing kinds of models and I really like this idea of, of reminding ourselves that you know the government needs to actually be uh, nimble in its procurement um, there was reference made to the Department of Defense and the Pentagon right in defense they absolutely are the customer and they are what drives the incentive to produce you know the next aircraft carrier or whatever it might be we really need to be more nimble, I think, in our procurement so that we can get our ideas pulled through to scale in these new ways. So that puts quite a lot of pressure on the government to think about its procurement and about regulatory flexibility and new funding models. When we think about funding, uh, go back to Nishacharya, uh, the government funded by tax dollars, but people don't want to see their taxes go up. And so that sometimes can be a challenge if governments are, aren't resourced uh, well enough uh, to be innovating. Uh, right. So I think that's that's the biggest challenge we're going to be facing in the next few years is uh, is government resources, I think, you know, and this question of whether it goes to, uh, I think, vaccines and prevention. I think there's general agreement we need to do that. But when you get to some of these other issues like education, technology, broadband, I think that's a valid discussion as to whether it goes directly to small businesses and, and taxpayers as relief or you're investing in these things. You know, it looks like right now Washington is willing to, uh, you know, debt is cheap and Washington is willing to, um, you know, uh, use uh, that to its advantage and, and uh, pass big stimuluses. So I think, you know, in that context, there appears to be funding for it. Um, in the long term, obviously, we'll have to look at a couple of different options. If the private sector steps up, I think impact investing in philanthropy, as Dr. Murray said, is a area that with a lot of potential, it's... Uh, you know, uh, to date, it's, um, you know, unrealized potential. But if those sectors step up, uh, you know, I think uh, unrealized to their capacity, uh, if they step up, then maybe a little less government funding is needed. And then, you know, maybe there does need to be some sort of a change to our tax code, uh, whether it's a wealth tax or returning corporate tax or, you know, some sort of uh, no different structure around R&D. Um, I think we will have to think creatively about solutions to make sure that money is there. And again, I, I talk about three specific ones. One was uh, vaccines and prevention or treatment. Uh, the other was ed tech and third was broadband. And I think you could make the case that those three are all mission critical at this stage in our, our country. Uh, Fiona Murray, you again are Associate Dean at MIT. Do you find that, that students there are thinking about the public good versus uh, heading off to the private sector? Uh they are absolutely thinking about the public good. They're very mission driven, uh, but that often means that they are heading off to the private sector, but they are looking for jobs where they can have impact quickly. Mm -hmm. Many, many more of them are heading into startups because they're absolutely sure that through startups who can be very nimble and agile, they can actually start to move their ideas forward much, much more rapidly. Uh, I think they do it in a quite um, you know, open-eyed way, knowing that they're then going to have to engage with the government, uh, with large corporations. They seem to have a real willingness to do that because they know that it's really only in these kinds of quite complex but robust partnerships that they can have the impact that they want. But I think there's a real view that 
the private sector in effective partnership with different public sector organizations is really the solution uh, and the kinds of solutions we need to put into place. So I think our students are really excited about working on these big challenges. Um, Nish outlined a number of them. Um, we see them, if we have a hackathon or any other event around something that does have this mission critical um, element to it, as we did with our COVID-19 challenge, we had 4,500 applicants for 1,500 places for the event that we ran on the April the 3rd. And so you absolutely see a sort of a call to action uh, but a lot of that is then going to be expressed in students wanting private sector jobs in startups uh, where they want to grow and scale those startups in effective ways with the government, which is why I think we come back to the government making sure it's a really good partner. And whether it's through challenges, advanced market commitments, nimble procurement, I think we, we really do have to come up with these novel ways of engaging to make sure we pull those mission critical solutions through for the benefit of all of our society. Because I think especially in the wake of this crisis and when we move, I hope, from crisis to calm, there really is going to be continued and massive dislocation and inequality. Mm -hmm. and, and these mission critical projects have to also take that into account and make sure that everybody can be part of, of the innovation economy going forward. That's a good point to end on. Uh, Fiona Murray, Associate Dean of Innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management, also co-director of MIT's Innovation Initiative. Fiona, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Also with us on Zoom, Nisha Charya, again, a contributor to Forbes, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Nisha, we make sure we'll uh, tweet out some of the links uh, to some of the articles you write for Forbes. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Lucy, and good luck with the show. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. Tomorrow, we're going to take a little bit of a break and focus on something that might bring you joy, and that's gardening. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.